This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. Takeaways from the Capitol riot in Washington one year later. Is dry January the way to kick off 2022? Giving up drinking for a month has surprising immediate benefits. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Americans quit their jobs in record numbers in November, over 4.5 million, the most in the two decades that the government has been keeping track. The rate was especially high in hospitality and other low-wage sectors, where workers have been taking advantage of strong demand to look for jobs with better pay or working conditions. Some economists say employer demand is still extremely high, resulting in increased competition for workers. But this week's data predates the recent explosion of Omicron cases, so how this will affect the broader economy remains unclear given new restrictions. Effective this week, there's a new ban on surprise medical bills in the United States, a major new consumer protection that covers all medical services and most routine care. For years, millions of Americans with medical emergencies could receive another nasty surprise, a bill from a doctor they did not choose and who did not accept their insurance. This new law makes that illegal. Even with insurance, emergency medical care can still be expensive, and patients with high-deductible plans could still face large medical bills, but the law will eliminate the risk of an extra bill. Rest in peace, BlackBerry. Time of death, this past Tuesday. All classic BlackBerry smartphones running versions of BlackBerry operating systems no longer work for calls, text messages, data, and 911 calls, essentially making them unusable. In 2016, the company transitioned to a security software focus under the name BlackBerry Limited. Customers largely abandoned the device and its full external keyboard and small screen once smartphones came on the scene. I did play the piano, and then I, I also played the cello, which is a very nice instrument. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was also an avid reader. Her personal library is going to auction, including books signed to her by Gloria Steinem, Toni Morrison, and Antonin Scalia. More than 1,000 books from the library of the late Supreme Court Justice will be for sale online only later this month, including a combination of heavily annotated law books, fiction, opera, and first editions. Ginsburg died in September of 2020 at the age of 87, leaving behind a massive personal library that she had assembled with her late husband Martin over the course of 60 years. Daughter Jane Ginsburg says her parents were not book collectors, just big readers, and there were books all over the house. The oldest World War II veteran in the United States has died at the age of 112 this week in New Orleans. Lawrence Brooks was also believed to be the oldest living man in the country. 
Brooks was known for his good-natured sense of humor, positivity, and kindness. He often said the secret to living a long life was serving God and being nice to people. We helped fund humane studies in the specific health problems of dogs, cats, horses, and zoo and wildlife. Fans of the late Betty White have planned a challenge to honor the legacy of the TV icon and animal advocate. The Betty White Challenge urges fans to donate $5 to their local animal shelter on January 17th in her memory. That would have been her 100th birthday. After her death, December 31st, tributes poured in from so many, including animal organizations, who fondly remembered White for her charitable work and advocacy for animal causes. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. One year ago today, in this sacred place, democracy was attacked. January 6, 2021, the world watched in horror as the United States Capitol building was attacked. Since then, over 700 rioters have been charged, many remain in jail, and a commission is now tasked with finding the roots of the insurrection and plans to release its final report this summer. I spoke with political science professor Dr. Christopher Jelpe to reflect on the one-year anniversary of the attempted coup. Was the January 6th insurrection, was it a one-off, or should Americans expect another attempt on the Capitol building? Well, it's hard to say whether there'll be another attempt at any particular time, but I would not say it's a one-off in two different senses. First, uh, I don't think this is the first time that we have had uh, white supremacist organizations try to sort of defy uh, constitutional voting processes, that there, there's a history of this kind of insurrectionist behavior in America. And I think that we need to understand that the activities of the particular individuals like the Proud Boys and some of these other white supremacist groups are really facilitated by a wider sort of lack of concern about violent activities by sort of right-wing white supremacist organizations relative to how much the Amer- uh, American public is concerned about things like uh, Islamic terrorism, that there's, there's a sort of a, a, a wider spread acceptance of those kinds of groups that I think creates a, a continued risk of events like that happening again. So you've mentioned there have been other similar attacks, but not quite the extent of violence for the January 6th. How did this one escalate to this massive show of aggression that we saw a year ago? Well, I think it escalated because it was crafted by Republican politicians, and in particular um, by the former president, in order to try to sustain him in office. I think it was a deliberate campaign to overturn the constitutional process by the elected president. That is, I think, unique in American history. So speaking of the former president, a new poll just this week finds that 83 percent of Americans believe the 2020 presidential election results were legitimate. Incredibly, 71 percent of Republicans still feel that Trump won, despite zero evidence of widespread voter fraud. So how does the U.S. as a nation regain this higher degree of trust in its election process? I think that is really the $64,000 question. I think the kind of misinformation that the former president spread and that was facilitated by other Republicans who remain in office is one of the most dangerous things that you can do to undermine democracy. 
in a strange way, although, you know, there isn't evidence of the president conspiring specifically with Russia, say, with, with the Russian misinformation campaigns. I think after all of those investigations, you know, we didn't really find much evidence of collusion. But ironically, he's really trying to do the same thing here in terms of calling into question democracies. The January 6th committee expects to release its final report in midsummer. Um, and from the information that's been released so far, what do you who do you feel is responsible for what happened that day? And what do you think will happen with this final report? I think there are subpoena powers, are there not? Yes. Who is really responsible? I mean, I think there are a number of, of people who are responsible, but I think primary responsibility has to be uh, left at the feet of the former president, who uh, effectively directed the rally to engage in an attempted coup and who sustained this level of misinformation about the electoral process. I mean, there are lots of other people who are complicit in this, but I think, you know, primarily it, uh, it falls at his feet. In terms of who will be held accountable, uh, unfortunately, I think it's unlikely that anyone will be held accountable because Republicans uh, in the Senate have decided that they feel that their political fate is safer in the hands of Donald Trump and Trump supporters than it is in standing up for uh, the integrity of the electoral process. You talk about this misinformation. It's a massive campaign of misinformation. I think over 700 now have been charged and federal prosecutors noted all of them and their overwhelming support for Donald Trump, yet they still reject any responsibility. It's it's astonishing. And I, I mean, I think you know, certain individuals will be held responsible in terms of, you know, the arrests for the violence of the day and the people who were actually at the Capitol. But that is really, you know, uh, going after, if you think about this in a sort of a racketeering criminal context, that's really going after the street dealers and not not even worrying about the sort of drug kingpins who are organizing the whole system. And that's what, that's what seems like is going to happen. I do think there's a potential that while Republicans are sort of playing with this insurrectionist, white supremacist sentiment to sort of rally public support among their constituency, there is a risk that it will get out of control that even if they should try to back away uh, at the last minute, that uh, they, may, they may not be able to change the path if they, if they push it too far, that they may feel, they may think that they can engage in sort of a, a brinkmanship in, in rallying the public. But I think they may find that uh, it's harder to pull back from the brink than they think. Dr. Chris Jelpe, thank you so much for this. Thank you very much. I appreciate the chance to talk to you. That was Dr. Christopher Jelpe, director of the Mershon Center for International Security Studies at Ohio State University. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, how a dry January may help your pandemic anxiety. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca. At 
Abstaining from alcohol for 31 days this month may not seem like a big sacrifice, but health experts say it not only offers immediate benefits, but can be a good test for whether you have a problem. And with more Canadians drinking as the pandemic continues its relentless grip, giving up booze may be harder than ever. I spoke with Dr. Peter Selby, who specializes in addictions at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, about Dry January. Dry January, we're in the middle of it. Is it a good idea? It depends on who it's for. It's always a good idea, you know, with a new year to start thinking about what you want to try differently the following year. And usually dry Januaries are ways to sort of, you know, often overcome some of the, uh, at least in previous times, uh, you know, some of the excesses that were engaged in during the December, the end of year parties, etc., Alcohol consumption, no secret that it has increased sharply during the pandemic pretty well everywhere. In the spring of 2020, sales in the U.S. were up 34%. In Canada, 24% of alcohol users are drinking more often than they did before the pandemic. How long before we see the real health and social impacts of, of these numbers? So alcohol in the short term can cause immediate effects on people's sleep, on people's hearts, on people, you know, especially it can tip people over, right, into those conditions. I mean, so those can happen fairly quickly after people, you know, start uh, increasing and as well as effects on sleep. Uh, you know, alcohol, although it knocks you out, really disrupts sleep and sleep quality because it suppresses your REM. So you really don't want to be using that. Over months, you can actually start to, your depression can get worse, actually, because alcohol is a depressant. And then, of course, we have the biggest concern, which is not the biggest, but one of the big concerns is effects on the liver and the development of cirrhosis and uh, also pancreatitis, which is inflammation of the pancreas, which is a very painful condition. So you put that, that, that comes up in the intermediate risk. And then, of course, you know, most people, and of course, that's because we don't have any warning labels whatsoever, most people don't realize that alcohol is a major cancer-causing agent. Mm-hmm. Ethanol, it's not, it doesn't matter what type of alcohol you drink, it's ethanol that causes cancer. Do, do you find, though, for dry January, it tends to be more of the moderate drinkers who take part in this and the, maybe the serious ones who need to take a look at it are not engaging? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, what is, and it's easier for people who, who don't have a big problem with alcohol to, to abstain, but having said that, you know, it's kind of, Interesting. People who, you know, for every one person who has a severe alcohol use disorder, which would previously be considered like an alcoholic, uh, there are four people who are drinking in excess. They seem to be functioning well, but they're drinking in excess and causing themselves and others around them harm, either physically or psychologically. So, actually, from a public health perspective, that group causes and 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 has more problems than the smaller percentage who have. Uh, a, a severe problem, you know, uh, that's often is in the news and in the media and often comes to our attention. Uh, but it's the actual other hidden majority that is more of a public health problem. I noticed just this week in Ireland, they imposed a minimum price on alcohol um, yeah. intended to curb binge drinking, reduce alcohol related health issues. But it's just Correct. one of very few nations to introduce such a measure. Why do you think others have not followed suit? Well, Many people have looked at alcohol, or at least, you know, previously as, as part of culture, and and of course, once it's been commercialized and there's a commercial value to it, that has been pushed away. And normative drinking patterns, which is you know in moderation with uh, you know in social situations, 
has given way kind of worldwide to this idea of getting intoxicated and binge drinking. So rather than having more and more dilute alcohol, people are, you know, having shots, et cetera, of very concentrated alcohol and then getting into trouble with it. Mm-hmm. And of course, the cost and availability of alcohol is directly related to its consumption. So from a public health perspective, you need to reduce the overall consumption of alcohol in a society if you want to have health benefits. Do you think this time of year it might be just just too much for people and, and throw in not only New Year's resolutions, we're in a right. pandemic, and now you're saying dry January. Is it just too much for people and basically saying all of this is enough to make me start drinking? Sure. And I think people are, look, people are at a heightened level of stress and distress and are looking for comfort. And they're looking for ways to, to handle it. So clearly, if people find alcohol is helping them, and they need to really think about whether if, if in fact it really is or is that actually worsening it. The second thing is that it's not really getting to the true cause of what's causing you to be anxious and worried. And if, let's say, you have a genetic risk of alcohol problems in your family and you start using alcohol as a way to cope, now not only do you have the problem because of the pandemic, but you have the double problem of the pandemic plus developing an alcohol problem. Giving up alcohol for 30 days doesn't seem like a big sacrifice when you look at it, but it does offer a timeline where people can see, you know, short-term improvements. Yeah. How many of these people who give it up for a month do you think end up really, you know, reviewing their relationship with alcohol and maybe cutting back? Not completely, but... I, I think there's some evidence that it may make a small, pop, at a population level, make a difference. But I do know of people who have done that and have suddenly realized that, you know what, they were really didn't like the way alcohol was making them feel and behave or something really pragmatic because they realized in a month they saved so much money. I think people are beginning to educate themselves and recognize that, you know, it really doesn't add much to the quality of their life anymore. And and socially, it's now way more acceptable to be a teetotaler. If you're not drinking, nobody bothers you. Dr. Peter Selby, thank you so much for this. You're very welcome. That was Dr. Peter Selby, who specializes in addictions at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross, in for Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.